from the book of Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah about who they're writing to. Nahum specifically writes to Israel and to Nineveh by way of Israel, as it were, to sort of both audiences. He is saying to Nineveh, your time is up in light of their repenting from their repentance, as one commentator puts it. They have given up covenant faithfulness to God. You remember in the days of Jonah, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. Jonah preached. Nineveh repented. God spared them of judgment. And now 100 years later, God was riding out against, in judgment, Nineveh, that great city of Assyria, for the wicked atrocities they had done against his people and for their own idolatry. And so much of Nahum is devoted to the theme of the destruction of Nineveh, and he is saying this to Israel with this theme in mind. Do not end up like Nineveh. We'll look at that this evening, a little bit more introduction, context setting, and then we'll jump right into the book. I'm going to read Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, focusing mainly through verse 14. The burden, or the word, or oracle against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Alkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and he will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming, sorry, overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Derek, there is someone at the back door. I think it's Marco trying to get in. Though they are safe and likewise many, Yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace, O Judah, 
Keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you tonight. And our longing is that we might be students of your word with hearts aflame and burdened for obedience and the spread of your fame throughout the world. That we might be what Israel was not, consumed with the magnification of your glory, not only in this church, but in the places right now that are lost in darkness. That we would not see your judgment and be passive in response to it, but that we would check our own hearts to see where we might be cold and indifferent to your word. That you would begin here in the household of faith. That you would develop in us a warmth, a love, a longing for your presence and what your presence brings here on earth as it is in heaven. Whether it is judgment or it is grace, we seek your glorious name to be magnified from this place, radiating outward into all the world. We ask this then in your name. Amen. <clears throat> a little bit of background uh, concerning Nahum and the time in which he lived. Nahum wrote at the end of the reign of the wicked king Manasseh. Manasseh's reign began in 687 B.C. and ended around 642 B.C. Children, you may or may not know this, but when you're B.C., going forward is counting down. After the coming of Christ, going forward into the future is counting up. So for nearly a half a century, Manasseh brought sin and shame upon the nation of Israel, and through his idolatry and moral compromise, Israel endured years of social, political, and moral decline. Sound familiar? He failed to honor the Lord as his father Hezekiah had and did much wickedness until his repentance and reform later in life, but the damage had been done. And now one of the things that Scott Oliphant, or not Oliphant, um, O. Palmer Robertson in his commentary speaks of is the sort of desperate spiritual estate of the nation of Israel even at this time. In many ways, they were no better than Nineveh, but God was going to use the destruction of Nineveh against the wicked, deserved punishment of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria to try to jolt Israel into repentance. Uh, the image I have in mind, you know, right? The paddles, clear, and they put the paddles down on your chest and they try to shock you to bring you back to life. God was trying to do a, a hard reset on Israel by showing his wrath and destruction against Nineveh because the sins of Israel had grown very great and so too the sins of Nineveh. In fact, in Nahum chapter 3, the sins we read of are, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. 
And then Nahum chapter 3 verse 4. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Nineveh was not only a nation gone astray, but they had undue influence even over God's people. This mistress of sorceries is the kind of personification of pagan religion that Israel was going with. The sins that God had against Israel are written in 2 Kings chapter 21. Beginning in verse 9, we read, But they would not listen, that is Israel. Manasseh led them astray to practice more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed in the presence of the Israelites. So the Lord announced through his prophets, because King Manasseh of Judah has committed these despicable things, acting more sinfully than did all of the Amorites who preceded him, including making Judah sin with its idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, Look, I am going to bring such a disaster to Jerusalem and Judah that both ears of those who hear about it will ring. It's like a prophecy that... Have you ever been hit in the head so hard your ears ring? Such a prophetic disturbance and such judgment, the ears of the Israelites would ring. This is the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already gone into captivity by Assyria many dozens of years earlier. And so Nahum, a skilled poet, is writing a song of Yahweh's glory and righteous rule, of truth and justice and judgment and destruction. It's not a song we sing, or it's not a theme that is particularly popular in churches today. Why? Because we have grown fat on only good news. Even when the news that rightly ought to be delivered to us are words of warning... Because all around us are despicable acts. And day in and day out, we walk by these things and we turn our eyes and we turn up our nose and we stop up our ears and say, well, that's just the way of the world. But brothers and sisters, it does not have to be this way. Even as God pronounces woe upon Nineveh, he reminds his covenant people He warns his covenant people not to be like that wicked city. Now, here are the three points that I want to make this evening. The the first point, the inescapable judgment of Yahweh. The inescapable judgment of Yahweh. Remember, this is Yahweh, the covenant God, our covenant God, who is in covenant with all nations, especially those like Nineveh who heard the preaching of the word and repented. They had special revelation. The inescapable judgment of Yahweh. Second, the recipients of Yahweh's judgment. The recipient of Yahweh's judgment. And then lastly, the urgent nature of Yahweh's judgment. Let's look at this first point. We'll see it in verses 1 through 6. The inescapable judgment of Yahweh. Now, verse 1 is just a very brief introduction. This is an oracle, a prophecy, or a burden against Nineveh. It is written by Nahum, according to the visions given to him by the Lord. 
And this is what he sees at first related to the character, the being of God himself. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. We see something of the wrath of God. Now there's something also that we see. That God is slow to this wrath. This does not mean that God does not watch. That God could not act more speedily. But God is generous to men in his patience. More generous than we deserve. Because God is a God who is slow to anger. Now that does not mean that he ignores offenses. But the slowness of his anger is in relationship to his longing that men might see charges against them and go, we should not act this way anymore. Let's repent. But what can never be said of God is that he lacks power, that he lacks wrath, but that he is slow to display his power in wrath against the wicked. But his slowness does not account for injustice. Right now in our lives, oftentimes, we experience injustice. That is the product of our living in a fallen world. That is not the product of providence. Because God will, in his time, right all wrongs, even if we do not see it. This is what Asaph remembered in the Psalms. That he saw the wicked and they were flourishing and the righteous and they were perishing. And he's saying, what is happening? This does not compute according to the scriptures. Until he went into the sanctuary of God and he determined or he ascertained, he remembered the true end of the wicked. Remember, what the, the, the Bible teaches us is to have a, a long perspective of things. That there is this life and there is the life to come. And those two lives are connected and what joins them legally is the justice of God, his righteousness. And sometimes we wait for his righteous judgment till after our death. There are people who have experienced accusations and they've been in jail or they go to the gallows or to the electric chair or the gas chamber unjustly. Which should not make us cry out, no more justice system. It should make us cry out, A, for justice reforms and also, Lord, how long will you wait? Come. And solve this problem of human injustice. That is the judge himself. Now the nature of his judgments is seen in verses 4 and 5. And it is seen first in how he shows judgment through natural causes. Look at his control. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel weather, wither. And the flower of Lebanon wilts. What is the Lord doing? He is showing his sovereign hand over creation. There is nothing that does not happen on earth that is not the direct product of God's sovereign, immediate, personal superintendence. We sing in the Psalms that God is the one who causes the deer to twist in labor. I don't see many deer. God sees all the deer. And when it is their time, God causes any deer to give birth. 
That's his. Just in the same way that when the sparrow falls, God sees that. He has ordained that. A sparrow. Now that is used in the scriptures in the New Testament to remind us of what? Does he not watch over us? Now for the Christian, this is goodness. But for those who deserve God's wrath, this is terrifying news. Because what God has is a record of all the sins that we have ever committed. High and low, all the sins we've ever committed. And if God can turn mountains to molten lava, if nothing is safe, not just creation, but look at verse 6, the pinnacle of creation that is you and me, man, who can stand before him? None. This explanation of the wrath of God is meant to provoke in our hearts one of two responses and maybe a little bit of both. I'm glad that God is no longer angry with me. For my sins are paid for through his son Jesus Christ. But then there's a little bit of, I know my sins are paid for. I love sin too much. And God hates what I love. And that's a problem. Lord, teach me to hate that which you hate. And then there are then those who are on the other side and they say, as it relates to the, the presence and the terrifying wrath of God, Woo, I don't want to hear about that. Right? Romans 1. They suppress then exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they either do it legalistically or hedonistically. But what we can never say is that there is somewhere to go to flee from the wrath of God when he has his sights set upon us. There are no mountains we can dig beneath. There are no walls that we can hide behind. There is nothing his judgment is inevitable. And the effect of that judgment is furious wrath like fire, verse 6. Children, maybe there have been times in your life where you have felt that kind of fire even from your parents. Oh, no. Will I ever live to see another sunrise? Maybe. I thought that as a child. In fact, I was so scared one time, I contemplated running away from home. And then I realized, how can I live without my mom? <laughs> Not my dad, because my dad was the one coming home to make sure that uh, my offenses committed against my mother were not committed again. That parental wrath against sin is a picture. And it is a picture of what all sins deserve. Condemnation, pain, displeasure. And so as Nahum is arguing from the lesser to the greater, that is God's work in creation that is seen in how mountains quake and hills melt and hurricanes come, all of that is a picture of God's power. And the question for us is, do you want that power leveled against you? And a sane person would have to say, no, how can I escape that judgment? 
Now, what was Israel doing at this time? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. Don't tell me about it. Why do you think they killed the prophets? Because they were the voice of God saying, Stop. Don't go that way. Flee from your idols. And yet they did not wish to do that. It is an inescapable judgment that is prophesied to Israel and Nineveh about Nineveh. And so we then see the recipients of Yahweh's judgment. And the recipients of his judgment we cannot see to be merely divided um, between national lines. That is to say, God has a chosen nation, and that nation is the church. And it has always been that way. When Nineveh repented, what did God say? Forgiven. No judgment. Did he hold back? No, he didn't say, well, you're Ninevites. Let's see a little extra repentance. And if Jerusalem had repented, if Judah had repented, God would have done what? Okay, you are forgiven. In fact, the Bible says that he is quick to, re- to forgiveness and slow to anger. Which is why you should never withhold confession from the Lord. That Yahweh's covenant favor is upon the righteous. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. He's not wicked And if the Lord is good, then his judgment is good. And he knows who trusts in him. And if God is good, and he knows those who trust in him, that goodness is extended to those who trust in him. But for those who are not good, as a means of setting contrast, verses 7 and 8, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an utter end of the place of his enemies. They cannot stand before him. God cannot but destroy that which is wicked. And so when we speak of God's covenant favor, we speak about it upon the righteous. And the righteous are found wherever God by his spirit brings repentance, whether it's Nineveh or Egyptians, as I mentioned this morning, or Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And yet she confessed faith in the Lord. Or Rahab, who was once a harlot, who confessed faith in the Lord. They had no business, as men may say, being part of the household of faith, and yet God condescended. God's covenant favor is upon the righteous, but his particular wrath is upon those who conspire to reject his covenant favor. So we've already looked at verse 8, this judgment, and then verses 9 through 11 in response to what? What do you conspire against the Lord? That means a group of people coming together as a group, and they say, we will no longer fear the Lord. Now, the reason why groups are important is the same reason why schools of fish swim together when the shark is nearby. Because there's safety in numbers from a shark for some of the fish. (laughs) But from the Lord, there is no safety in numbers. The Lord does not come to men and say, oh, you guys seem to have come up with a good plan. I guess I'll let you keep that plan. As long as you're sincere and you do good things to other... No, that's not how it works. In fact, this is how the prophets 
dovetail nicely with what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans as I'm preaching in the morning. God's wrath is upon Syria because they conspired against the reign of God. But God, verse 9, will make an end of it. Your plans are done. I see your plans. I know what you're doing. They're not going to last. And I'm not going to afflict you, here he says a second time, that is in order to bring about repentance. The chance, your chances, you're done. You're done. Now God determines that, correct? And he has determined it. Here is more description of their sins. Uh, For while tangled like thorns, while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. If you look at the world around you right now, what you see is something like Mardi Gras the day before damnation. All the world is partying on the brink of destruction. And calamity will come upon them in the middle of their bacchanalias, their festivals, their celebrations. This is what the Lord is saying. Nineveh, this is the declaration now that you have not heeded. It is here. You will be tangled and drunk even as you are devoured. And the picture I have in my mind is some guy who's been drinking so much there's a lion gnawing on his leg and he's just laughing about it. And he's bleeding to death. It's a strange thought. That is man in their rebellion and sin. That even while they are feasting with the instruments of their, device, their demise, those things are killing them. And then verse 11 There is one who comes forth who are the kinds of people who counsel other people to continue to do the things they're doing as though they are good. These are the high priests of paganism. Right? This is the Planned Parenthood director. These are the people who give approval and say, this is good. But God's wrath is coming. Thirdly, the urgent or immediate nature of Yahweh's judgment. In verse 12, the Lord says again that God will help Israel by bringing terror and judgment against Nineveh. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, Yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Who was the affliction of Israel? It was Assyria, the northern and even to some extent the southern tribe. And God says, I will cease these afflictions. You see, there is almost a mixture, well there is, of warning and also a declaration of God's covenant favor to Israel. And he says, I will relieve you of this burden. But to what end? There is still judgment coming. Look at verse 13. For now I will break of his yoke from you, 
and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. When the Lord says that he will break the yoke, Israel had been tied to this wretched nation. And God says, in my destroying of Nineveh, you will be set free from that. But then later, as we get into Nahum and then later into Habakkuk and Zephaniah, what we will see is the same judgments that God brings against Nineveh, he will bring against Israel. And we come to this conclusion that great judgment awaits those who are not only blind to the wrath of God, but especially those who are blind to his mercy. You know, I think of um, people who have grown up in the church or people who are attending faithful churches where the word of God is preached and Lord's Day after Lord's Day, they hear the preaching of the word and they still seem to be yoked to rebellion. And they hear the warnings and they also hear the offers of mercy and their hearts are hard. The what you should be thinking right now is this, may that not be me. But humble yourself before the Lord. Because though Nineveh thinks they are safe, they are not. And this is how judgment will come. Look at verse 14. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, that is their pagan temples... I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. The very instrument of their destruction is the place they went to for refuge. The psalmist says it this way. Though you worship idols, the idols you worship, you will become like them. You become what you worship. If you worship those demons that are not God's, or just mere idols made by human hands. You cannot continue. Your name will be removed from all the earth. So here in, in the bulletin where it says, no safety in your name, I'm writing about this idea. There is only safety in the courts of God and his holy temple. And the only way in which we have safety is if we are brought in by God's grace. Perhaps the gospel invitation in the time of Noah was, get on the boat. Because outside the boat, there is no safety. For Moses, it was what? Yahweh has sent me. Now get beneath the blood-stained lintel. And then later, get to the altar. Seek salvation in the sacrifice and in the coming of Christ. Ultimately, what? Do not seek salvation in the carved images made by men, but in the crucified Christ once for all. And that is why we see verse 15. It's a strange thematic shift. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What God is doing for those who hear and who keep covenant with God is the furthering of peace 
not only between himself and them, but God is through the people, his people, through their ministry of word, prayer, and sacrament, cutting off the wicked from this earth. And the glorious promise that we await, the glorious future, is this. One day we will have inherited the whole earth. It will be ours and we will reign like kings and queens forever. And the only way that's possible is if there are no more wicked nations, no more wickedness at all. But for us, it comes down to this. To see the wrath and judgment of God poured out against sin and to repent that we might be saved. Let's pray. Lord.